I can still remember where everything is in the room. I can remember what it smells like. I can remember the sound of the TV anchor on the TV behind me. I can remember who's seated with me. It feels like yesterday. April the 18th, 2014, I sat in a hospital waiting room. Just 24 hours before, I had been sitting in a different room when my wife and I had been told that without a surgery, our 18-week twins inside her womb would die. We wouldn't become parents again. And so 24 hours later, I sat in a hospital waiting room feeling more out of control than I'd ever felt in my life. And through a couple doors, not that different from this one, my wife lay in an operating room. And it, it felt like an eternity. It was the first time I'd been in a waiting room where I'd been the one waiting. Where I'd been the one who felt worried, doubtful, insecure, and out of control. And I looked at that door... And I wondered what was going on behind it. And I prayed, just prayed that, that I would be able to become a dad again. Maybe you've been in a waiting room like that. Maybe you're in a waiting room like that today. The problem with waiting rooms is that we don't wait very well. Very few of us, when asked to describe ourselves, would pick the word patient. And yet waiting is our destiny. Lewis Smedes, the author and theologian, said, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. If you're in the waiting room today, you'd say, yeah, it feels kind of like that. Today, we begin a season in the church year that we call Advent. Advent is a, a word that's rooted in Latin, and the Latin meaning of Advent is arrival. Advent is the season in which we begin to prepare for and await the arrival of Jesus' birth. And it's an important season that we shouldn't rush through because it's a time for us to prepare ourselves. And yet that preparation is often uncomfortable. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the famous writer of the 20th century, described Advent in a unique way. And in a letter he wrote from prison in 1943, he said, a prison cell in which one waits and hopes and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Advent is like a prison cell because you sit in a room and there's a door that leads you out of the room. The only problem is the door is locked from this side and it can only be opened from this side, maybe. <laughs> Always a good idea to practice your props before you get on stage. And if you've been in a waiting room, or if you're in a waiting room today, whether it's a literal one or a medical, metaphorical one, the challenge that you're going to face is that you may be able to see the door out, 
but you probably can't open it. So it makes the waiting so hard. If you could open it, you'd just leave. But I believe that God does some of his best work in waiting rooms. Moments we wouldn't have asked for, moments we wouldn't have planned, moments we wouldn't have given ourselves to, and yet he is at work in that space. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at what God does in the waiting room. Because if you're not waiting right now, you're probably going to wait in the future. And if none of us wait well, then we probably should do some work. And if you're like me, when you're in waiting rooms, when you're in a period of waiting, you begin to hear voices that tell you lies. And I believe there are some lies that we hear in the waiting room. And we're going to add to this list each week in this series. But the first lie that I believe we hear in the waiting room is that since I don't hear or see God doing anything, he's doing nothing. If you're in a waiting room today, you're going to hear a voice that says that since you don't see, since you don't hear God at work, God must not be at work. And that's a lie. The second lie that I think we hear in the waiting room is that God's hiding from me. If you're in a waiting period, you're going to be susceptible to the lie that the reason you can't see or hear God is is not because you're not looking or listening hard enough. It's that God's hiding. God's pulling away from you. God's trying not to be found. And each week in this series, we're going to talk about the lies that we hear in the waiting room, and we're going to talk about the truth that speaks into those lies. And the first truth that we're going to talk about in this series is this. It's our big idea. That while we are waiting, God is working. While we are waiting, God is working. We may not be able to see it or hear it in the moment, but as we'll see in our story today, God is working. Now, what I want to do over this series is I want to introduce you to some people that you may not know who are a part of the Christmas story. And for some of you, your problem is, is that you've been through Advent before. And because of that, you think you know all the stories. It's kind of like those Christmas movies you watch every year. You're not surprised by any of the plot twists. My kids watched a movie a couple nights ago, and they watched it last year. And it's just that they'd never seen it before. I knew what was coming. They were freaked out or excited. And I'm like, we watched this last year. Um, but, but that's what happens when you get older. You get cynical. And some of you are that way, not with Christmas movies, but with the Christmas story. And you think you've seen it all before. You think you've heard it all before. And so what we're going to try to do is introduce you to some people maybe that you haven't thought of before. Because the context of the Christmas story is waiting. The people there were waiting maybe more than we realize. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to the book of Malachi. Malachi is not a book we're typically in. It's the 39th book in the Bible. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And it's the book right before the book of Matthew. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 ends with verse 6. And it's not only the end of Malachi, it's the end of the Old Testament. And and if you have a a literal Bible, I want to encourage you to just take the page that Malachi is on and turn it, okay? Just turn the page. Just turn one page, okay? I'll know you're doing it because I can hear your pages turning. If you're on your phone, I can't hear you swiping. Um, But you just turn the page, okay? 
If you're on your phone, you just swipe, and all of a sudden you go from Malachi to Matthew. You see how easy that is? You just turn the page. Here's the problem. That page represents 400 years. 400 years between Malachi 4.6 and Matthew 1.1. 400 years. It's really easy for you to turn the page. But that represents generations. And traditionally, this section between Malachi 4 and Matthew 1 is known as the 400 years of silence. Because there's no prophetic voice. There's no word from God. And so people go, well, that's the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. But that's not actually true. There's a lot happening between Malachi and Matthew. There's, There's wars. There's battles. There's generations. People are living. And so I think a better title for this section is the 400 not so silent years. The not-so-silent 400 years. Because what happens in this period is God is preparing for the arrival of his son. But if you were living in that moment, you wouldn't pick the word preparation to describe it. You'd pick the word turmoil. Because as Malachi ends, the, the, the people of Israel are shifting from being ruled by the Babylonians to the Persians. And then they go from having the Persians rule them to the Greeks. They get a little reprieve when a group called the Maccabees rises up and defeats the Greeks and they rule themselves. But the problem is the Maccabees can't get along. So they call the Romans and they say, hey, can you referee our fight? And Rome goes, sure, we'll referee your fight. We'll take over. And the Romans become the leaders. The temple is rebuilt, but it's a lot smaller. The Greeks come in and they desecrate the temple. They, they make an offering to a false god and they throw the blood of that offering everywhere. And the people begin to long and they begin to wait for the Messiah to come. And if you think about 400 years, if you were to go back 400 years from now, that's 1619. People were just coming to this nation. 1607, 1609, they came to Jamestown. The pilgrims came a few years after that. How many generations passed in that period? A long time. You think you've been in your waiting room for a long time? Try 400 years. And when you're in a waiting room like that, the temptations get real and things get hard. And I think we'll see in their story today three temptations. Three temptations that they face and three temptations that we face. And if you're following along in your notes, here's the first temptation. That in the waiting room, we're tempted to believe that God isn't working. When you're in a waiting room, either a literal one or a metaphorical one, and the waiting continues and it continues and it continues, you begin to wonder, well, is God doing anything? Because I don't see it. I don't hear it. I don't feel it, that first lie, you know, when you don't see, you don't hear, God must not be working. When you're in the waiting room and the waiting lasts longer than is comfortable or preferred, you will begin to be tempted to believe that God isn't working. Let me make this really practical. Let me give you an example. Have you ever gone to an event and you said, hey, let's carpool. Come pick me up. Okay. So you're at your house and you're waiting for that person to show up. And so you get ready on time and you step at the front door and you look at your watch. Okay. I'm still early. I still have time. And then the time comes and then five minutes pass and then 10 minutes pass, and then 15 minutes pass, and you go, well, it's, 
I live in Prescott. It can't be traffic. You know, there's, 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 there's no reason why they're late. And then it's 15 minutes and then it's 20 minutes and your mind begins to go places. You ask yourself, did they forget? You ask yourself, did they get in an accident? Maybe you go to fear. Maybe if you're insecure, you go, well, did they get a better offer? Did they just ghost me? Am I just going to be stuck here all night? You know, why did I trust them? You get angry, you know? Uh, You go, did I give them the right address? And then finally you just lose it and you go, I should have driven myself. You, You go through all those emotions. That's just for a ride to a party. But when you're waiting on God and you've been expecting him to show up, you go through all those same emotions. You go through fear. You go through doubt. You go through worry. You go through insecurity. You go through anger. You go through a desire for control. You work through all of those feelings. And you begin to wonder, well, is God even working? Because I don't see it. I don't feel it. It's so interesting how the Apostle Paul describes the arrival of Jesus in Galatians chapter 4. He says it this way. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But when the fullness of time had come, That's when God sent his son. The fullness of time. What on earth does that mean? That means that God views time differently than we do. And God's calendar and watch are set to a different rhythm than ours is. And we measure time by hours and minutes and days and weeks and months and years where God views time in a radically different way. The people of Israel living in those 400 years thought God was late in sending the Messiah. But according to Paul, when the fullness of time had come, that's when that Messiah came. It's this reminder that God's timing is different than ours. If you're reading through the devotional with us, the Giglio devotion, waiting here for you, that was one of the big themes from this week. And it's one thing to say God's timing is different than ours. It's another thing when you're in the waiting room to embrace it. Because if you're in the waiting room and you discover that God's timing is different than yours, the first response is probably anger, frustration, discouragement. How long am I going to have to wait then? And when you look at what's happening in the context of the arrival of Jesus, God is literally setting the stage for Christ to come. We see it now, but they didn't see it then. God was literally creating the ideal environment for his son to come to save the world and then for that message to explode across the world. In those 400 years, Greek is becoming the language spoken across the known world. The Romans are creating the Pax Romana, 200 years of relative peace. And they're creating a road system that the world had never seen. A language, a path, and peace 
so that in a couple hundred years, the message of Jesus could touch the ends of the earth in the fullness of time from God's perspective. For those of you who don't know the rest of the story that I started with in the beginning, eventually the doctor came out into that waiting room and he said, hey, everything's okay. The surgery was a success. He said, but the next 48 hours are critical. He goes, because you can have a setback. You're not out of the woods. But if you can make it through the next 48 hours, literally for us, from Good Friday to Easter, from Friday to Sunday, he goes, you'll have an 80% chance that your wife will carry these twins to 32 weeks. You might think, oh, that's awesome. Except I walked out of one waiting room and I walked into another. It's it's probably happened to you. You thought you were waiting and waiting and waiting and finally I'm free to only step into another season of waiting. And when you end up in waiting like that, you become vulnerable to the second temptation. The second temptation is we're tempted to look for alternatives. You see, when God isn't coming through the way you thought he would come through or when you thought he would come through, you begin to make alternative arrangements. If you're waiting in that house for that friend to arrive and you think that friend might not bring you, what do you do? Make sure your car has gas in it. You text another friend, hey, I think they're not going to come. Can you, can you come by and grab me? You know, text them, hey, I'm, I'm not feeling good. I'll, I'll just see you there, you know, and protect yourself. And in the day of Jesus, as they were waiting for the Messiah to come, the people began to look for alternatives. And what they did is they stopped looking to God for their respite, for their refuge, and they began to look to the law. In this period, the the focus of worship for the people of Israel shifted from the temple where they would go and worship and make sacrifices, and the the focus shifted to the synagogue where they taught the law, and groups arose like the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, groups that if you study the, the day of Jesus, you've heard about. And they got to know the law really, really well, but as Jesus comes, he speaks to them and he points out the problem. In John 7, he says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. So why do you seek to kill me? He would go on and say in the temple, You know me, and you know where I came from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, and I come from him. And he sent me the people in that day. They got to know the law so, un- so well. They would memorize the 600 plus laws that govern daily life. But Jesus says, hey, you know my law. You know this book. But when the one who wrote this book shows up right in front of you, you don't know him. Because you're looking to the book, not to the one. Some of us, we have been following Jesus For 30, 40, and 50 years, you know this book back to front. But do you know the one this book is about? Or have you settled for knowledge of this rather than knowledge of him? You go, man, why is this bad stuff happening to me? I pray, I read my Bible, I give to church, I'm there every Sunday. Oh, so that's why you think God should bless you? Because you do all those things? Or do you know him? 
See, these are the alternatives. And it's not a new story. It goes back to the day of Moses. There's a mountain called Mount Sinai between Egypt and Israel. The people of Israel, they get free. They leave Egypt behind. They go into the desert. They're there for a few weeks. They end up at Mount Sinai. And Moses climbs the mountain to get the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. You know, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet your neighbor or what they're getting for Christmas. It's really hard if they have a bow on top of the new car in the front yard on Christmas morning, but don't, don't covet that. Have no other gods. Honor your parents. Keep the Sabbath. You know, the Big Ten. And while Moses is on that mountain getting the Big Ten, here's what happens at the bottom of the mountain. Exodus 32 says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And they said to Aaron, Moses' brother, make us gods who should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. They were waiting for Moses. And guess what? He took too long. So they said, make us new gods. And Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from them and fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. They had just been brought out of Egypt by all those plagues you see in the movie. God had just delivered them out of hundreds of years of slavery. They had left their waiting room. They had stepped into another waiting room and they couldn't wait a few days. And so they say, Aaron, make us a God to worship because this God isn't coming through for us. See, this is what happens. You think you finally succeeded in leaving one waiting room and you step into the next one and you're more vulnerable than you realize and you look for an alternative. I love how Tim Keller describes this temptation about idols. He says that an idol is anything you turn to and say, save me. So when you're waiting, what do you look to to save you? Is it your skills and your talents? Is it your money or your relationships? Is it your influence or your power? Is it shopping or drinking or clothes or social media? When you're uncomfortable in the waiting room, whatever you turn to to sustain you and save you, that is your idol. That's your golden calf. Because what happens in the waiting room is we get a sense that things aren't going the way that we planned. And instead of waiting for God, we create a plan B. We find an alternative. And that's why I want to warn you that the waiting room is a dangerous place. You might think, well, this is is the best place. I'm, I'm like right next to the place that's the place that'll heal me, the, the place that will help me. I, I'm, I, can, I can see the door that will lead me out of the waiting room into that thing that God's doing, so I must be safe. No, no. 
you're in danger. Because you're going to face lies and temptations. You may even create idols right just on the other side of what God has for you. Because this is a door that only opens from the other side. And no amount of money, no amount of power can open that door. You have to wait and you have to depend on him. And you have to continue to reach out to him. And that's the third temptation. In the waiting room, we're tempted to stop reaching out in faith. If this is a real life thing for you, where you are in a season of waiting right now, you know what happens when you've been waiting for days, weeks, months, or even years. You begin to ask yourself the question, why? Why should I even try? Why should I even reach out in faith? I've done it before, Scott. This is a place that I know all too. It's like a second home to me. Why should I try to reach out in faith? Why should I trust God? Why should I depend on him? Why should I expect him to show up? He hasn't shown up and he's not coming. See, what I've found is that waiting reveals the heart. You want to know what somebody's like? Make them wait. I think all job interviews should involve sending someone to Costco the day before Thanksgiving. (laughs) You want to know what it's like to be married to somebody? Drive through the 405 in L.A. during rush hour traffic. Even just last week, I didn't mention this last week, the devotional you all got was ordered on October 31st. And on November 20th, last Wednesday, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we realized that it had never been shipped. So we called, emailed, sent smoke signals, did all we could. We couldn't reach the distributor. Finally, I started tweeting. And I was nice in my tweets. But I started tweeting. And on Thursday night at midnight, going into Friday morning, somebody saw it. So we got a call Friday morning, and it was rush delivered to us, and I got it on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. And I have to tell you that I didn't wait very well. You can ask my wife. She'll tell you I didn't wait very well for that package to arrive. She said, I just find it ironic. And I said, what? She said, the book is called Waiting Here for You. (laughs) And here you are, waiting for the book to arrive. I felt out of control. I felt embarrassed. I felt afraid it wouldn't show up. And waiting revealed what was in my heart. If you want to know what's in your heart, then go through a season of waiting. And that may be one of the things you're discovering if you're in the waiting room right now, is that God is revealing your heart and you don't like what you see. And we see this so powerfully represented in a story that came to me a few weeks ago. I was driving home from the gym one morning. I literally pulled over to not, to not forget. But my heart was drawn to a passage in the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles open to it, Mark chapter 5. 
Because again, all throughout the scriptures, we see people who live in a different time. They didn't have social media. They didn't have high-speed internet. They didn't have cable news. They didn't know that the earth was round and not flat. They didn't know about gravity or that, you know, the natures of the universe. But they're people just like us. And in the book of Mark chapter 5, we see a woman who's waiting. And waiting in ways that sometimes maybe go beyond the way that you've waited. In Mark 5, 25, the passage begins by saying there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who'd suffered much under many physicians and she'd spent all that she had and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She was waiting for 12 years. In our time, she'd been bleeding since December 1st, 2007. And in that day, if you were bleeding, you were unclean. No one could touch you, and you couldn't touch anyone. So she's isolated in her misery. And the text says that she suffered under many physicians. So she goes to people who she thinks are going to help her. And they make it worse. And it says that she spent all that she had, and she was no better but rather, she grew worse. That's one heck of a waiting room. And this goes on for 12 years. And she's facing a not yet that feels like a not ever. She's facing a door that she cannot open until she hears about a man named Jesus. The passage continues she heard the reports about Jesus. And she came up behind him in the crowd. Now notice, to to be in a crowd, (laughs) you got to touch people. She isn't supposed to be in a crowd, but she goes into the crowd anyway. She comes up behind Jesus in the crowd and she touches his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. Do you understand the act of faith that is? She's been to physicians who have not helped but hurt she's literally penniless in the pursuit of her healing and after 12 years she goes into the crowd and she reaches out she says if i touch him he will heal me that's faith and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease and jesus Perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, and I wish you could see this picture because it's just totally incredulous. You see this crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Like Jesus, everyone's touching you. (laughs) Everyone's touching us. How can you say who touched me? And he looked around to see who'd done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, how she'd been healed. She came in fear and trembling and she fell down before Jesus and she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The waiting room was over. And she chose to not listen to the lie that because she couldn't see or hear God working, that God wasn't working. She chose to reject the lie that God was hiding from her. 
And even in her waiting room, she reached out in faith and believed that while she was waiting, God was working. And that if she could just touch him, she'd be healed. If God is working while we're waiting, I believe he's inviting us to reach out to him in the waiting. Even while we're still struggling, even while we're still waiting, he invites us to reach out to him. And the question I have for you today is where are you reaching? Are you reaching out to Jesus or are you reaching to your idols to save you? Are you reaching out to Jesus in faith or are you creating plans B, C, D, and E? Are you depending on him or are you creating a backup plan if he doesn't come through? Where are you reaching? And I want to remind you that I don't think God is hiding in your waiting. I think he's waiting to be found by you if you'll pursue him. See, I think often what God does in the waiting is he invites us to a level of desperation and dependence we haven't known before. This is a season of desperation. I'll just tell you as a pastor, I've been working in churches for almost 15 years. People get desperate in this season. And often desperation is what God has been waiting for. Some of us don't like to be desperate. You know? It's like, ooh, she's desperate, he's desperate, ooh. But what desperate means is you finally know what you need and you know who has it. And you're going to go towards that. And some of us haven't been desperate for God because we've been looking for and depending on alternatives. And that woman became desperate for Jesus to heal her when she had exhausted all of the alternatives. And he was standing right in front of her. And I will tell you that in that waiting room, the first one, it felt like an eternity. It was just a couple hours. Those 48 hours, they felt more like months And over the next 18 weeks, as my wife was on bed rest, 12 weeks at home, six weeks in the hospital, back and forth, in that waiting room, I experienced a level of desperation that I hadn't known before, because guess what? I couldn't do it all. I couldn't take care of my wife and be a single dad to my two-year-old son. I couldn't be a pastor to people and be pastoring my family. I needed help. And so I became desperate for God, and I became desperate for help in a way I never had before. I couldn't be self-sufficient anymore. And today, that waiting room has led to these funny guys. And I would have never asked for that waiting room. And given the opportunity to go through it again, I probably would say, sorry, but no. But when I think about what happened on the other side of that waiting room? The different Scott, the different Danny, the different marriage, the way that I show up in waiting rooms with other people, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone through that waiting room. And what you want the most what you may yearn for the most, that desire you may have in the deepest part of yourself, it may only come to life because you went through a waiting room. And I believe God does some of his best work while we wait. 
And I want to help you learn how to wait well in this season. So on the back of your handout, there's some next steps I want to draw your attention to. And here's the first one. I want you to get a piece of paper out and I want you to draw a picture of your waiting room. You go, Scott, I'm not an artist. That's okay. This is not going up in an art gallery. You're not going to get a ribbon at the fair for it. I'm going to ask you to tune into your imagination and to draw out your waiting room. I I began this message by describing that I can remember, still in my mind, a mental picture of my own. So get a piece of paper out, get a pencil or pen, channel your inner child, and draw the waiting room. Where are you waiting? What does it look like? What's going on? Number two. Describe how you're doing in the waiting room. Are you afraid? Are you worried? Do you feel out of control? Are you doubting? Are you angry? How are you doing in the waiting room? Number three, identify one tangible way you can reach out in faith while you're in the waiting room. Maybe it's just that you're going to commit to be here every Sunday. Now that you know what I'm talking about this month. Because some of you are like, I don't want to come back. If this is the first week, good Lord, I'm staying away till Christmas, you know? <laughs> Maybe you just go, hey, I'm going to come back. Maybe you go, I'm going to continue to read the Bible and pray even when I don't feel like God's speaking. Maybe it's you're going to continue to show up to your small group when you want to isolate in this season. Maybe it's that you're going to invite somebody to be with you on Christmas Eve. Maybe in your mind, this whole time I've been talking, you've had a step in front of you. Don't squelch that voice. That's the Holy Spirit. Identify one tangible way you can reach out in faith and take that step. And then number four, identify one person you know who is waiting and one way you can wait with them. Maybe for you, you're not in a waiting season right now. That's awesome. But you know someone who is. Last week, Jeff Newton gave a great message about gratitude from Job. And if you know the story of Job, after the part that Jeff talked about, what happens is that Job's three friends show up and they wait with him for a week in his grief. They say nothing and they're amazing friends. And then they open their mouths and they go from friends to enemies They skip the whole frenemies section. They just go straight from one to the other. And if you're in the waiting room, what do you not need? You don't need somebody to show up who has all the answers. You don't need somebody to show up with all the cliches. You don't need somebody who shows up with a list of Bible verses for you. You just need somebody to sit with you in the waiting room and say, guess what? You're not going to be alone. Who do you know that's in the waiting room? And how can you wait with them? You know the root of the word compassion, that we say compassion, the the literal uh, Latin root is to suffer with. You want to have compassion on somebody who's waiting? Then suffer with them. Show up. And in your heart of hearts, believe that while we are waiting, God is working. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.